We thank you, Lord God, for um, just your word, which shows us what it means to love you and to follow you. And we pray that you just give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us this morning, that you give us eyes to see you clearly and to give us hands and feet to respond to you as you call us to do. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so what, what is the relationship between love and forgiveness? This is an important question. It has implications for how we relate to God and one another. It brings to, to the foreground questions about what a real love of God looks like. And it brings into sharp contrast our sin and God's holiness. How could we love God as we should in a world as broken as ours? How could God love us as sinful as we are? How could, how could God forgive us as just as he is? Now, I've been a Christian most of my life, but it took me a long time in my journey with Jesus to really understand the depths of my sin and the depths of the amazing love that is revealed in the work of Christ. You know, I did a lot of good things growing up. I went to church most Sundays. I read my Bible. I prayed. I tried to help those who I deemed were in need. But I did a lot of it out of obligation, either begrudgingly carrying out a to-do list um, until I could take a break and do what I wanted to do with my time or, or religiously carrying out the religious duties in hopes that I would, it would secure God's love for me. Yet this only moved me further and further into fear, self-reliance, and a self-righteousness that masked my brokenness with an appearance that I had my life together. I knew my sins were forgiven by grace, but what about my sins of tomorrow and the day after that? Would God still love me then? What is the relationship between love and forgiveness? Now, our passage today gives us insight into this question. But more than that, it gives us a glimpse into its reality, lived out in the messiness of real life. It pictures before us two very different responses to Jesus and his ministry. As we encounter a woman broken by her sin and a man named Simon who seems to have everything that he needs. As the two are compared, we see what a true love of God looks like. A deep reality is pictured before us in this passage, revealing what is true of all of us who have come to God resting in the finished work of Christ. That we love much because we have been forgiven much. So let's take a look at these two different responses to Jesus. Um, starting with the response of the sinful woman in verses 36 to 38. Then one of the Pharisees is invited him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. Now there's a lot going on here culturally speaking. So let me just set the scene here for a moment so that we can better understand the vulnerable and, and significant thing this woman is doing um, in, this, in this passage. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 5, the last passage I preached here, um, we talked about how important fellowship, table fellowship was in Jesus' ministry. Jesus often used these ordinary moments like eating and drinking to do extraordinary work in people's lives. And he calls for us to do the same. 
to open up our tables to be places of grace and community and mission. This is why at the Hollows Church, we, uh, the table is one of our, our core values. We seek to follow Jesus in this ministry um, strategy, opening up our homes and our lives to those around us, to, to point our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends to the difference that Jesus makes in all of life. Um, now, we saw in our passage a few weeks ago that Jesus got in trouble with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the socially powerfully religious elites of Jesus' day, because he was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. They didn't like the friends that he was making, the, the, the fellowship that he was keeping as he invited sinners like Levi, the tax collector, into his inner circle of friendship and community as he, as he became one of his disciples. Um, but in our passage today, surprise upon surprise, a Pharisee, uh, no less, named Simon, invites Jesus to his own table. Now, the text isn't clear why Simon invited Jesus. If you followed along with us through um, the Gospel of Luke so far, you will have, you'll see that Luke doesn't always, or Jesus doesn't always um, get along with the Pharisees. He often challenged them on their strict interpretation of God's law and on their hypocritical and self-righteous attitudes. Yet we see um, here in a few other passages throughout Luke that Jesus wasn't exclusive in his ministry. He ate with and ministered to Pharisees just as he did the outcasts and forgotten of society because whether they realized it or not, the Pharisees were just as much in need of God's grace as anyone else. Now, why did Simon invite Jesus? Well, perhaps because he wanted to confirm the stories he had been hearing passed around the dusty roads of Galilee of a new teacher, someone with an entirely different interpretation of God's law, someone who is doing miracles even greater than the prophets of old. So he invites Jesus over for a meal to see what he's all about. Now, in the time of Jesus, these meals were viewed a lot differently than they are today. Sharing a meal was imbued with ritual meaning, um, often signifying close friendship, full acceptance. Now, these meals were a big deal, and one's guests said a lot about who um, you were and the things that you valued. Now, the invitation to meals were normally sent out a day or two in advance, and when guests first arrived at the banquet, a servant would often meet them at the door and lead them to the dining area. After their shoes were removed and their feet washed, they would um, take their place at the table. Now, since ancient homes were a lot smaller than modern ones, there wasn't like specific rooms for dining, but tables could be brought into the room and that could be set up for dining by setting um, couches around the floor in a U shape. So you can imagine Jesus and his disciples accepting this invitation from Simon, entering his home and reclining on the couches around the tables as the meal begins. And there's gonna be a lot of people at this meal that a lot of Simon's guests and friends have come along with Jesus. But the mood drastically changes as a most unexpected guest bursts in, a sinful woman. Now our passage defines this woman how Simon and his friends would have defined her, by her sin. She's given no name. What, why this woman is considered sinful is not specified. Most Bible commentators believe that she was either a prostitute or had committed some sort of sexual immorality like adultery. What is fairly certain, however, was that this woman was not welcome. Meals in ancient times could be used to draw sharp lines between in-groups and out-groups. And even within the meal itself, there was often a strict hierarchy that was followed. Only the socially superior were allowed, were allowed to recline at the table, while women and slaves and children, even if they were invited at all, had to sit 
uh, had to be in a sitting posture, indicating social inferiority. Now, this was even more true of Pharisees like Simon, who followed strict laws of ritual, ritual cleanliness that did not allow for fellowship with those who were deemed sinful. Um, hence why they got upset with Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners. Now, this interpreta- their interpretation of the Mosaic law was so strict that they would have considered contact with this sinful woman to cause her uncleanness to rub off onto them, making them unclean as well. So by simply coming to this meal, this, this woman is risking ridicule and rejection. But the first thing we see about her radical response to Jesus is that she doesn't allow her sin to keep her from coming. While Simon and his friends defined her by her sin, she saw Jesus as bigger than any other definitions, bigger than any of her sin. The next thing we see about her response to Jesus is her emotional repentance. The Greek word used in verse 38 for the woman's weeping is a verb used of strong emotions for mourning and wailing over death, something lost, and for the emotional response to one's own lost condition. Unlike the many excuses we might make for our own sin or for the this is who I am, you better accept it mentality of our time, this woman is honest with herself. She knows she's a sinner and it brings her to tears. Now, along with her repentance, we also see humility in her response to Jesus. I can bet that she didn't mean to wet Jesus' feet with her tears, but overcome by emotions as she was and seeing Jesus' dirty feet, she takes up the task of a slave and washes his feet, not with water, but with her own tears, drying his feet with her hair. She exemplifies true humility in this action, for as another pastor once said, um, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. To unbind the hair in public was not culturally acceptable behavior for women, but this woman leaves all care for public opinion behind as she pours herself out before Jesus. She isn't thinking about herself. She's not thinking about others. She's thinking only about Jesus and all that she wants to do to show her love for him. It's like one of my favorite Christmas movies, Elf, when Buddy the Elf bursts into his his father's business meeting crying out, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. You know, this woman doesn't care what Simon and his guests think. She's come to thank and honor Jesus. Um, Then she kisses Jesus' feet, a sign of reverence and gratitude, and pours over his feet perfume, the perfume that she brought with her. Now, this was a costly action. Perfume in those days was was an expensive luxury. But she does it anyways. She shows by her response to Jesus that she spurns no expense to show her great love. Now, the simple woman's response is immediately contrasted by the response of Simon the Pharisee. We see this in verse 39, where, um, uh, where Luke says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, we see in Simon the quintessential response of a Pharisee, the response of someone who's blinded by the sin of self-righteousness. Now, if you are with us a few weeks ago, we unpacked a definition of self-righteousness. But just as a reminder, self-righteousness is a self-made righteousness. It's living by the standards not set by God but by one's self. This is exactly what the Pharisees were doing in following their strict interpretation of God's law. By adding their own laws as a fence around the written Torah in order to keep people from breaking the law, they were ending up following their own man-made traditions instead of remaining faithful to the heart of God. The same is true of self-righteousness today. 
It's a righteousness that is devoid of relationship, one that actually erodes and hurts and destroys relationships. It's a righteousness that moves one's trust away from God and his covenant to trust in the self. Self-righteousness is self-reliance. And that is what we see in Simon's response to Jesus. He sits back and critically watches events unfold, believing two things. One, that he doesn't need Jesus. He's, just a, he's not even a prophet, like the people say. Number two, that he is better than this sinful woman. It makes me wonder again why Simon invited Jesus to his table in the first place. It, the scene brings to mind a, um, the movie Mean Girls. If you haven't seen it, it's about how mean girls can be in high school. And it follows this new girl at the school named Katie who befriends and is later harassed by the cool girls, you know, the popular girls in school. But this, this scene here in Luke reminds me of a particular scene in the movie where Katie's school crush invites her to a Halloween party. Now, Katie, unaware of Halloween um, high school etiquette, dresses up in a costume that's a little more scary, a little more grotesque, you know, a little more what you'd think of um, Halloween to be instead of like a pretty outfit in the the, the mean girls make fun of her all night. Now, I, perhaps Simon really did want to see if Jesus was the prophet everyone said he was. But was he actually looking for a, an excuse to reject Jesus, to ridicule Jesus, just like the other Pharisees were doing? Now, I, we can't be sure what his motives were, but we see here that he spends the night just like the mean girls did, responding to Jesus with unbelief, with ridicule. And to this woman with a prideful self-righteousness that keeps her in her place. It reminds me of a story by Flannery O'Connor, a Catholic writer in and around World War II. Um, She wrote a short story called Revelation that illustrates well the posture that we see here of Simon. Now the story follows Mrs. Turpin, a hog farmer who goes with her husband um, to the doctor to get his ulcer checked at. Now she spends most of the story sizing up the other guests in the waiting room thinking about how better she is than all of them. Now, but her wonderful, the wonderful thoughts about how God has made her so greater than everybody else is cut short by another guest in the waiting room, a mean, ugly-looking girl named Mary Grace, who unprovoked throws a book at her face and looks her straight in the eye and says, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Now, Mrs. Turpin takes this as a, a message from God. And she's shocked by the revelation. Now, she takes Mary Grace's words with her throughout the rest of the day. But in, when evening approaches, she's out watering the hogs and railing against God, upset that, we, she would, uh, that God would send her, a good church-going woman as she is, such a message. When the land is caught on fire by the setting sun and she sees a vision of a bridge leading up to heaven. And on this bridge is a procession of freaks and lunatics, the, the poor and the worthless, all the people that she all the people that she judged throughout the story. And bringing up the rear of the procession are those like herself. They are marching behind with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order, common sense, and respectable behavior. They're the only ones singing on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. It says, Jesus says to the religious uh, rulers in Matthew 21, 31, truly I tell you, Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Why? Because of their response to Jesus. Because the freaks and lunatics knew they were in need. While the good and respectable had all they were in need. They they were happy just as they were. Their very virtues became obstacles to a true love for God. To, To see who Jesus is and respond as they should. To a vibrant faith in the one who alone saves. 
Now, as we put these two radically different responses side by side, we come to see that this passage is actually an illustration of our previous passage from last week. Um, now, if you remember, um, faced with questions about John the Baptist and himself, his own identity, Jesus points back to the prophets to show that he is the Messiah promised to come who will save his people. And Luke adds a little aside that captures the response of the people to Jesus' words that sums up our passage today. In Luke uh, 7, 29 through 30, um, it says, And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, that is Jesus' words, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the God of plan for God's plan for themselves. And here it is, two responses to Jesus, acceptance and rejection, belief and unbelief, repentance and self-righteousness, surrender and self-reliance. There is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. You can't just get a little Jesus here and there where you think you need it and keep the rest of your life to yourself. You, you either accept him as Lord and Savior, surrendering up all control, giving up even the good things in your life or you reject him completely. But why do these two people have such a different response to Jesus? Why does the woman accept Jesus in, in his ministry and Simon the Pharisee seemingly reject him? Why does she see her need while Simon is blind to it? Well, Jesus answers this question for us in his parable, a story about love and forgiveness. It goes back to the question that we started with. What is the relationship between love and forgiveness? Jesus shows us in these next verses that forgiveness leads to great love, that we love much because we have been forgiven much. So let's take another look at Jesus' parable, verses 40 to 43. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owned, owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Now this is a simple story, but it has profound implications. There are two people who owe money. One a lot of money and one a whole lot more. Now a denarii was the usual daily wage for a day laborer um, in those days. So 500 denarii was a lot of money. But 50 was a lot too. That's over a month's worth of work. Yet it's important to note that both of these debtors can't pay back their debts. It doesn't matter whether one owes more than the other. Both of them can't pay their debt back without the grace of their creditor. Now, this is everyone's situation without Christ. God, God's word makes clear that we are all sinful, that we have all fallen short of what God made us for, destroying instead of creating, hating instead of loving. Now, because we chose to set ourselves up as our own gods, to refuse to live as creatures under the creator's care, choosing instead to, to define right and wrong however we saw fit, we brought brokenness into this world, a broken relationship with, between us and God, between us and one another, between us and this hurting world. And whether or not you do more bad things than the person you're sitting next to or your neighbor down the street, it doesn't change the fact that you can't make up for your sin. This brokenness remains. The fact is, without Christ, there's a debt you can't pay. The good news is that God is not a creditor, but a good father 
who sent his only son to pay the debt that we could not pay by living the life we should have lived and dying the death we deserve to die. Now you see, no matter how different the woman and Simon looked on the outside, they both had debts to pay. Now the, the woman's sin was more apparent, yes, but Simon was sinful too. His was a self-righteous, self-reliant sin. He didn't trust in God but himself. Whether he realized it or not, his pride led, led him to live like he didn't need God. And he most certainly didn't need others. His self-righteousness blinded him to this, to this fact. And we, we still see this sort of sin running rampant in the church today. It's the sin believer, though I was, that I struggled with. As I said, I did all the right Christian things out of obligation, as if I was somehow earning God's love by, my, by the good things that I did. The tr- the, uh, I knew the truth of the gospel, that I was saved by grace alone, but knowing that and, and resting in it are totally different things. You know, if you're here today and you have put your faith in what Christ has done for you, know that you, your sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future sins paid for. But to live like you're forgiven is hard. Stanley Harwas, a theologian and ethicist, once wrote, We fear accepting forgiveness from another because such a gift makes us powerless. And we fear the loss of control involved. Yet we continue to pray, forgive our debts. Only by learning to accept God's forgiveness as we see it in the life and death of Jesus can we acquire the power that comes from learning to give up that control. You are forgiven. That is our unique identity as the people of God. We are the forgiven. There's nothing to make up for, nothing to prove, yet how often do we live like there is? How often do we act like we aren't forgiven? How often do we, as Hawass says, fear to give up control and rest in the forgiveness of God, the free forgiveness that also makes a claim on our lives? Do you see yourself as nameless, like this sinful woman? You're not. You have a name. God loves you so much that he gave up his only beloved son to save you. Do you think you have all you need, that you think you're in control of your life? You're not. One call to customer care at any sort of company makes me abundantly clear that I am not in control. God is the one in control. And learning to live as God's children means slowly giving up the control that we think we have to to rest in the full acceptance that we have in Christ. Yet this free grace is costly in two ways. It, It costs us our lives as we give them up to God in joyful surrender But most of all, it cost God the life of his son, Jesus, who gave everything away to save us. And as we grow in maturity in our walk with God, the cross, it only gets bigger. It's Calvin, one of the main theologians of the Reformation, who points to the truth that we see in the sinful woman, that it is the forgiven sinner who knows the true meaning of sorrow for sins. She had great love for Jesus because she knew she had been forgiven of her great sin. This is how it looks for for us as we grow in our faith. As the Spirit works on us from the inside out, He begins to reveal more and more of the sin and brokenness hidden in our hearts and minds. And at the same time, He reveals more and more of the holiness of God, His greatness, His justice, His goodness, His righteousness. And what this does is open our eyes to how big that divide is between who we are and who God is. 
we are sinful, God is holy. But the cross, it bridges the gap. And as we look again and again to the gospel, to the grace of God in Christ, his love and mercy get bigger and bigger too. We should have sorrow over our sins. They should bring us to tears, but not to despair. Because we are the forgiven. You are forgiven. Though we must always protect ourselves from the sin that blinds us to our sin. The sin that we see in Simon. The sin that makes our love grow cold. The sin of self-righteousness. So ask yourself this question. Is the cross getting bigger in my life? Do you have sorrow over your sin? Do you see yourself as, as a sinner in need of grace? Do you see how far God has gone to save you? Is your love for God growing each day? Forgiveness leads to great love. Now, the, we see this great love exemplified in the woman of our passage. Jesus brings it out in vivid color as he applies this parable uh, to Simon and the woman. In verses 44 through 50, he says, Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to, to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now that is a drop the mic moment. Jesus brings out the greatness of this woman's love in one more comparison between her and Simon. And here we see that the, the two responses to Jesus are so different because the woman and Simon, they represent two kinds of people, two ways of life. One marked, marked by love and surrender, the other by self-reliance and control. There is no middle ground. You either live a life based on forgiveness leading to love or one based on your own merits leading to self-righteousness. You either live a life accepting Jesus or rejecting him. I think it's important to note that Simon did nothing wrong um, as a host. Culturally speaking, he wasn't discourteous. Um, providing water for the washing of a traveler's feet is mentioned in the Old Testament, but it's not attested in Jewish literature as a normal provision for guests. Also, a kiss was an accepted greeting, but does not appear to be a normal act of hospitality. And commentators are also uncertain whether anointing with oil was a normal act of courtesy for guests as well. Let's remember who we're talking about. This is Simon the Pharisee, the Pharisees who followed every tradition to perfection. You're not about to find a Pharisee who is slipping up on his hospitality duties. He isn't inhospitable, but he doesn't treat Jesus with any special fanfare. He sees him just as he is, just as another guest, another teacher. You see in this response of Simon, uh, you see this response in Simon's other guests who say, who is this man who even forgives sins? How wrong they were. Jesus isn't a, a simply just another teacher or a prophet. He is the very son of God, the one who alone saves and forgives sins. The woman, on the other hand, she recognizes Jesus for who he is, and she responds accordingly. She is living her life from forgiveness to love. 
it's very possible that she may have had a previous encounter with Jesus not mentioned in Luke. Did Jesus heal her from, from some sickness? Did, did her disciples care for her some way financially? Or did she simply hear Jesus preach of the good news of God's kingdom? Whatever it was, it changed her life. And she was compelled to drop everything and thank Jesus. Her great love showed just how much she had been forgiven. Jesus confirms this with his statement, your sins are forgiven, which may have been more for the benefit of Simon and his other guests and friends than it was for this woman. He, as he speaks these words, he also confirms that he deserves such fanfare. He confirms that the woman is in the right in her expression of love and devotion because only God can forgive sins. She loves much because she has been forgiven much. And so we see the two kinds of people, those who see their need and those who believe they have all they need. It's those with great need who love greatly as they receive forgiveness and acceptance at no cost to themselves. Do you love much? Simon didn't. His idea of his own sin was very small, and so he, his love was very small. He wasn't broken over his sin, so he didn't see his need for Jesus. Are you broken? It, it took Tourette's and years of struggling with OCD for me to realize how deep my sin goes, how broken I was. But it also, but as my sin, as my knowledge of my sin grew, I also came to not just know but experience that I couldn't earn God's love by my own play acting at goodness, by putting new paint on a broken and hurting building. But as I grew in my knowledge of my sin, the, the cross, it got bigger. And how it gets bigger still. And my love, my love grows with that knowledge, with that knowledge of what Christ has done for me on the cross. The woman of our story shows us what it looks like to love much to worship well, to live like the forgiven. But what does your worship look like? Are you lacking in your love for Jesus? If yes, it may be that you lack in your understanding of your sin or of God's holiness. Do you look more like Simon or like the sinful woman? Do you live like you are forgiven? Or are you still holding on to control? It can be easy even as followers of Christ to slip up and to fall into bad habits, to simply go through the motions. This woman is not going through the motions. She challenges our worship with her dynamic and emotional response to Jesus. When it comes down to it, the, the depth of our worship will be determined by the depth of our awareness of what Christ has done for us. Sadly, even as believers, and sometimes even here at the hollows, this awareness seems to be lacking. How often do we come to church and just mumble through the songs or stand straight-faced and unmoved at the reading of Scripture? We should use our bodies in worship, kneeling, raising our hands, singing loudly, weeping, praying, dancing. Now, I know this is not a Pentecostal church, but these things are good. It's good to use our bodies in worship. So often it's the children who help teach us in this area, which is why I love having them join us for a gathered worship. We are holistic people called to use our bodies, called to use all of who we are in our worship of God. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans 12, uh, verses 1 through 2. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. 
do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Our lives should be living sacrifices, given away to God in joyful service and surrender for all that he has done for us. Our actions should be in line with our hearts and minds. And if we say that we love Jesus, it should look like it when we come together to worship him. It should also look like it when we leave this place to continue our lives of worship and acts of obedience throughout the week. You know, but how often do we fail to even come to church? You know, when the sun is out, you know, I, I appreciate all of you coming on such a beautiful day. Like, that's a hard thing for Seattleites, I know. But, but we, we should be excited about coming because this is a chance to express our love to the God who has given everything away to save us. But sometimes other things become more important. Sometimes work is just too exhausting to make time for worship. Sometimes family and friends are more enticing or a hike, you know, to see the beautiful sunrise or whatever it may be is more enticing than coming to worship with God's people. But this is only considering our gathered worship. How often do we also fail to truly worship God with our lives throughout the week? The woman showed humility in her service to Jesus. But how often do we care so much about what others think that we fail to talk about our faith with our neighbors or our coworkers? I know I fail to do that, not with coworkers, obviously, but with neighbors, yes. You know, this, this should be something that we can't help but share because we've been so changed by it. You know, this woman, her worship was also costly as she very likely gave up the most expensive thing that she owned when she poured the perfume over Jesus' feet. Is your worship that costly? Do you give of your time and resources out of obligation or out of gratitude? Do you think, oh, this is just one more thing that the church is asking me to do? Are you excited about giving up these things for the good of God's people, for the good of the world, and for the glory of God? Are you always looking for ways to give more? Are you just happy to give the bare minimum? You know, the German theologian Bonhoeffer writes of the reformer Martin Luther's conversion experience saying, in the depth of his misery, Luther grasped by faith the free and unconditional forgiveness of all his sins. That experience taught him that this grace had cost him his very life and must continue to cost him the same price day by day. So far from dispensing him from discipleship, this grace only made him a more earnest disciple. And so we see here again the principle that this sinful woman shows us, that when we are changed by grace, forgiven of all our sins, the natural outflow is love, a, lo a life marked by love and gratitude in surrender and obedience to the one who has saved us. Forgiveness leads to great love. Now, what does your love look like? This passage should, as all scripture does, convict those of us who are comfortable and comfort those of us who are discouraged or broken. If you came here thinking you had your life together, that you just need Jesus here or there to fix a little hole in your life, know that you are more broken than you think. That Jesus is either all or nothing in your life. And if you came here discouraged or broken by some sort of some sin, maybe that you did yourself or that was done against you, know that Jesus is bigger than your sin. And he's bigger than the sins of this world and the brokenness that we, that we face every day. The cross is bigger. 
you're defined not by your sin, but by Jesus. I mean, perhaps for most of us, I know for myself, we, we are both convicted and comforted. Maybe you feel nameless or hopeless in some area of your life, but others you hold back, hold Jesus at arm's length, and think that you know better than he does. Give it up, surrender all, and in so doing, find the freedom that comes with living as the forgiven, which only and always leads to a life marked by love and gratitude. Now, the, the, the devotion that this woman showed Jesus is exemplified in the devotion of the women that I read about in Luke um, chapter 8 at the beginning of the, the sermon. All these women share in common their love for Jesus and their lives marked by gratitude and generosity. In a culture that often either abused or ignored women, Jesus accepted them and gave them an honored place among his disciples. He saved them from personal lives of brokenness and from sinful social structures of oppression. And what was their response? Love and gratitude. Generosity to those who were serving them. The rest of the women in our passage are witnesses along with the first that forgiveness leads to a life marked by love and gratitude. We can love Jesus as he deserves only because we are forgiven, because we are the forgiven. This is the only foundation there is for a relationship with God. It doesn't go the other way around. Do you worship like this is true? Do you live like this is true? Do you love like this is true? Or are you still holding on to some sense of control? You don't have to. As God says through the psalmist, be still and know that I am God. Now, maybe right now your love feels cold. Maybe you've been a Christian for years, and at first the gospel was exciting and filled you with joy, but now it's just a story. Now you just feel like you're going through the motions. Or maybe, maybe you want to love God more, but you're distracted by so many other things. Your life is so full that you don't have room to really express that love. Or maybe there's a consistent sin that is keeping you from doing that, causing you to take your eyes away from the cross and from the love of God. Or, or maybe you're not even a Christian, but you want to believe. You just can't seem to get there. This or that theological statement is confusing or turns you off to faith in Jesus. You know, the good news is that we don't have to try to muster up the kind of love that this woman exemplifies in and by our own strength. We never could. This woman doesn't go to Jesus and express her love in this way out of obligation. No, it is a, it's a spontaneous response to the love that was birthed within her because of the love and acceptance she received from Jesus. The good news is, as the Apostle John says, we love because he first loves us. If you're lacking in your love for Jesus this morning, Simply turn your eyes to his work on the cross. Come to Jesus as this woman did, even if your emotions don't follow so easily. Come, come and see what he did for you on the cross. That he died there for, for you, for your sins. Not because of anything that you have done, but all because of his great love for you. As you rest in this grace, as you bask in his love, I assure you your love for God, for Christ, will grow. You will most certainly will grow in your knowledge of your sin. 
but it will be met by a knowledge of the love of the Redeemer, the Creator, the Sustainer, who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. We love much because we have been forgiven much. So come. Come love God for all the world to see. And now we turn to a practice of remembrance in the life of faith. You know, gathered worship is such an importantly, important weekly rhythm in our lives because as we come together to worship, we, we are reminded of God's holiness, of our sin, and of the amazing love of God revealed in the work of Christ. And, and that's what communion is. It's a symbol of this work, a practice in remembrance. For the, the bread is a symbol of Christ's body given for us. The juice is a symbol of his blood shed for us. He invites us to this table of grace to remember his sacrifice and to celebrate his victory over sin and, and death as we await the day when he will return to set all things right. And so I invite all those as we sing this first song to take of communion at your own pace all of those who know and love Jesus, who have come to see, just as this woman did, all of what they, that Christ has done for, him, for them. And if you're here and you're not a believer, I ask that you would, you would meditate on the facts, on this story, on this amazing love of God displayed through Christ. And as we worship through song, feel free to express your love for him in any way that you see fit. Don't, don't be thinking about those around you that we're not going to be judging people here today. We're, we're going to be expressing our love for God. So let's, I'll pray and then we can take communion and then we will worship through song. Father God, we thank you for the amazing work of your son, Jesus, who gave of his life to save us. Forgive us for the times that we fail to love him as we should. Forgive us for the times when so many other things are taking our attention away from you. And help us even now, Lord, to grow in our love for you as we think about what you have done for us on the cross. As we take of communion together, may we remember the sins that have been forgiven. And may we remember the great love that has been shown us through the work of your son, Jesus. And may we go from this place ready to express that love in all the ways you call us to do so. In your name we pray. Amen.